Our reading this morning is from John 4, 43 through to 5.15, reading from the NIV. Jesus heals an official son. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived from Galilee, from Judah, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met with him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time that Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed coming from Judah to Galilee. Galilee. The healing at the pool. Sometimes Jesus, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. There, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred while I am trying to get in. Someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his man and, and walked, mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow? Who told you to pick, up it, pick it up and walk? The man who has healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Amen. Could the 11s to 14s go now with Greg and Jordan up to their room? Thank you, uh, Kate. Um, It's a great um, privilege and honour to have um, Ian Galloway with us. Ian, please come and join me um, up here. Unfortunately, you didn't get the memo about the dress codes. 
sorry, I forgot to um, share that we always wear things like this on a Sunday morning. Uh, thank you. Um, Ian, it's been great to get to know you over the last few months. Uh, as a, now a student at Cramlin myself, uh, it's been good. But I'd love just to share a little bit about your ministry in the northeast before Cramlin, and then maybe hear a little bit about Cramlin as well. Maybe you could just share. Okay. Um, wow. Um, well, yes. Golly. Uh, <laughs> um, in 1986, which I know, you know, seems an awfully long time ago, Heather and I and four friends... Uh, planted a church in Biker in Newcastle. Biker's in the city of Newcastle. It was about 40% male unemployment. You know, the recessions of 81, 83 have been terrible. Um, but we planted the church, and um, I led that church for 33 years. I basically had a very, very sort of simple life, leading one church. Uh, we started out with six. We ended up with sort of um, hundreds of people, planted four other churches. And we became... Um, we became very well known in the region. We built a culture of grace, of authenticity, of empowerment, and um, of helping the poor. And uh, it, was, it was just an amazing thing to be part of. So I stopped leading that church four years ago now. Uh, we still go there. We're still part of it. Um, but it's, it's th- you know, thriving very, very well without me uh, in any leadership capacity. And... I knew I was going to step into a space of teaching and training leaders. That, that had been a passion of mine throughout my entire ministry. Uh, what I didn't know was that this door would open at Cramner. So Cramner's been training people for church leadership for over 100 years. Um, and I am the director of the free church track, which I think makes me sound I'm in charge of a disused railway line. Um, <laughs> but uh, actually at Cramner there's 41. Well, you're... you're you're the 41th. Uh, there's 41 students training for ministry, for leadership in the church, uh, f- who are not from an Anglican background, Pentecostal, Baptist, uh, Methodist, New Church. Uh, it's a thriving community, and it's all part of what we do at Cramner. We train everyone together. So that's what I do, and I teach leadership mission and a bit of New Testament. Fantastic. And we're going through the Gospel of John, which is convenient, um, is. because you've written a fantastic book. Thank you. Have you got, um, I'm assuming you've got some books to I, flog. I did actually bring some, yeah. There you go. So if you want to buy a book, uh, please do uh, speak to Ian after. I'd love to pray for you. And, uh, and, and pay the money as well. And pay the money. You need to pay some money as well. <laughs> <laughs> let's, um, let's pray for Ian uh, as he um, shares God's Word. Thank you. Lord God, we thank you for uh, the ministry uh, that Ian brings. And we thank you for the experience Uh, We thank you for his knowledge and his wisdom. Mm. Lord God, I pray for us uh, this morning that our our hearts would be open to hearing uh, the word that you put on his heart. Lord, Holy Spirit, work through us. Help us to hear, help us to reply, and help us to change as we hear the gospel message. Amen. Amen. Thank you, you, Martin. Thanks, everybody. It's lovely being here. There's lots of people in this church I actually know, some of them from a very long time ago, um, and it's, uh, it's just great to be here. And uh, the, f- the first time I ever saw a healing in the moment, totally in front of my eyes, was over 40 years ago. We'd, uh, we had our first, uh, well, it's not quite 40 years ago, actually, we had our first daughter, um, and she was a little baby, and a, a very suddenly a cyst started to grow inside her mouth and it grew very, very quickly. And a a lady came to our church um, from New Zealand, actually, and she had an amazing healing ministry. 
And we were just standing in the hall and we were talking about how Katie had had this, had this cyst in her mouth that was growing very, very rapidly. And we, Heather was about to take her to see the doctor. It was becoming quite concerning. Cecily took Katie in her arms, prayed for about, you know, 15 seconds, gave her back. It had gone. It had gone. But, okay. Jesus is healing people today. And... Uh, that was the first where it just happens in the moment. You know, sometimes healing takes a long time, doesn't it? Sometimes you have to persist in healing prayer. But sometimes God comes and sets us free. God comes and heals our sicknesses. And it was, it was wonderful to see that. And here we are at the end of chapter 4 in, in, in John's Gospel. And, you know, in the previous story, which takes up most of the chapter, Jesus is in Samaria. And it's a beautiful story. It's of another healing, really, because it's a story of how a broken and rejected and isolated woman unexpectedly meets with Jesus, and Jesus tenderly leads her into an extraordinary place of new freedom, where all her past hurts and all the damage that has been done to her is still being acknowledged as happening but it no longer holds her, it no longer binds her, it no longer controls her. It's one of the most remarkable transformations that you will ever see. And such is the impact on her that she goes back to her village, which probably has been the source of a lot of her pain, and she, she leaves pretty much the entire community to come and meet with Jesus too. You know, maybe you're here today, and maybe you're thinking, I'm trapped in my past. I'm trapped in the pain of the things that have happened to me. You know, maybe you were partly the cause of them, but possibly not at all. But what, whatever has happened, you know you're still carrying that pain and you can't let it go. Well, today can be the day where you meet with Jesus in a new and a surprising way. Today can be a day of freedom where you're not defined by your past any longer. You're defined by a Jesus who loves you deeply, calls you intimately, and can heal you and free you. And we'll come back to that. But the point here is, Jesus is in Samaria. Okay, He's staying in a village called Sychar, but he's actually heading for Galilee. And the journey to Galilee is how this chapter 4 starts. Chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. You see, the Pharisees learning that Jesus is now bigger than John the Baptist is really dangerous for Jesus. It's, very, it, it, it's politically very, very dangerous for him. So he decides to leave Judea where the Pharisees had a lot of political power and go back up to Galilee, ruled by a completely different family. It's much safer here for him up north. And he decides to go there quickly, taking the shortcut route through Samaria. But the keeping the low-profile thing doesn't work in Samaria. You know, what, what starts as a conversation with one woman at a well turns into a village revival. Everyone flocks to him and in a very unusual move, Jesus is recognized by them as prophet and Messiah, the new king from God who was going to save the world. This is not exactly low profile. 
And so Jesus still wants to go to Galilee. For him, it's a place of safety, a place of retreat. And that's where our story starts today. Chapter 4, verse 43. After two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. But when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Now, this is very precise, is it not? Let's just note that as we go by. Two days. This is eyewitness. Someone's counting the days. Someone's recording, possibly even taking notes. And this is how John writes his entire gospel. Every single story in the Gospel of John has been placed on a unified timeline. In John, you always know where you are and what time it is. And if you want my opinion, John is the closest eyewitness account we have of the life of Jesus. It's also the deepest account we have. It's also the most theological. It's also the most reflective. But you know, it can be both. It can, it's possible to be eyewitness on the detail, writing the notes of when it happened, and theological and reflective. It is possible to be both at the same time. So, after two days, he left for Galilee. You know, come on, let's go to Galilee. I, you know, this isn't, this isn't going well. I, 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 let's go to Galilee. I, I don't have recognition there. It's my hometown. I grew up there. I worked there with my dad. They won't go around announcing me as the saviour of the world and God's new king. Let's go to Galilee. Well, the strategy doesn't work. The strategy doesn't work. So the Galileans have been in Jerusalem For the festival, they'd seen the healings, they'd seen the driving out of the demons, they'd seen the signs, and and so they welcome him. A prophet's come. And to make it even worse, somebody really important turns up. Somebody really important. We went for, for dinner last night in the pub with the Prime Minister. I mean, it's like, oh my goodness, that's a bit strange, isn't it, to be sort of having your meal next to the Prime Minister? But never mind, that was a great experience of being in Osmotherly. But uh, here we are, Jesus is suddenly confronted with somebody very, very important looking for him. Verse 46, once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. And when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. You know, when one of your kids is sick, you are desperate. You will do anything for your son to become well. Now, Capernaum is 20 miles east of Cana. It's uphill all the way because Cana's on a high plateau. And after a very long and a very hot walk, the royal official retinue arrives in the village. This is not low profile. The royal official, who by the end of the story is actually simply known as the father, comes begging for help, asking for healing. Will you please come down and heal my son? He too has heard what's happened 
in Jerusalem. But you know what? Jesus' response is very, very, very strange. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Verse 48. He tells him off. He tells him off. He says, look, there's, the problem with you people is you have to see a miracle before you have faith. Now, this guy's just walked 20 miles uphill in the heat believing for a miracle. And Jesus is telling him off and telling him, why do you have to see miracles? His son is desperately sick. And Jesus is telling him off, saying, actually, I want you to believe, not just seek miracles. Which redefines what faith is, by the way, as we go by that. But leaving that aside... When have you ever said that to somebody who comes to you asking you to pray for their sick relative? When have you ever said that? The trouble with you is you're always asking for miracles. When have you ever said that? I have never said it. I don't think I ever will. I say, oh, I'm so sorry to hear about that. What is the matter with your son? What is his name? Let me write it in my prayer journal. Let's pray now. That's what I say. Isn't that not what you say? This is a huge pushback. This is Jesus being very, very reluctant. And we will come back to why in a minute. But actually what happens is this very strong rebuff to the royal official causes him to step even further forward in faith. You know, when you really want something and you experience a pushback, often your response, if you really want it, is to push back against the pushback. And that's what the guy does. He pleads with him. You can imagine him almost kneeling. Verse 49, the official said to him, Sir, begs him, Sir, come down before my little boy dies. See, the pushback doesn't make him give up. It makes him step forwards. And then Jesus completely changes tack. He doesn't push back on the pushback to the pushback. He completely changes tack. Verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. And as he was going down, his slaves met him and told him that his child was alive. See, this miracle is done in a deliberately hidden way. Deliberately hidden way. Jesus does the miracle, but Jesus also doesn't do the miracle. Off you go, he says. Walk away from me. This is what you've got to do. I'm not going to come. I'm here in Galilee. I don't want to come down. I'm in Cana. I don't want to come down to Capernaum. Off you go. You walk away from me. Go back home. That's how the healing will come. And it's in the obedience of the Father. It's in the feet of the Father that the miracle healing happens. As far as the mother is concerned, if there is a mother... As far as the mother is concerned, all that happens is the colour comes back into the boy's cheeks, he jumps out of bed and asks, what's for lunch? 
She has no idea that Jesus has anything at all to do with this. The Father is the only one who knows the whole story. He has to piece it all together, get the timing all lined up, and tell everybody what happened. Verse 52, so he asked them the hour when he began to recover, and they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, and the father realized that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he himself believed, along with his whole household, and would you not, would you not, if you'd been part of that? You see, this is very, very hidden healing. And let's think about those two things, the the reluctance and the hiddenness. Why the reluctance? Why is Jesus pushing back at this hour of desperate need? Well, I think there are a number of things going on here. Number one, Jesus doesn't simply respond to human need. He responds to God's lead. You know, and in this moment, Jesus is actually being human. He's being human. You know, you are human. Don't know if you noticed that. You cannot meet every human need. No one can. You should not expect to be able to meet every human need. You must be content not to meet every human need. And when someone makes demands, it's wisdom to make a space where you can decide what God is saying to you. If you take on all the need that comes at you, you won't be able to live. You've got to sleep. You've got to rest. You've got to eat. You've got to have fun. You've got to play with your kids. Please don't live for other people's needs. That is no way to live. The incarnate Jesus did not live for other people's needs. He lived for the will of the Father. Now, this is not the gospel of selfishness. If you are selfish and self-centered and all of your life has to revolve around you, you need to repent. This is the gospel of freedom. We are to be led by God. We are not to be controlled by other people, even other people's needs. And before you respond to anyone's need, press pause. Press pause. Push back. Ask God. Because, see, at this point in the story, John, the author, drops a little comment into the, into the narrative that steers us towards considering this story alongside another one in the Gospel. Verse 54, this was the second sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. Don't know if you noticed that. This little phrase only occurs twice in the Gospel of John. It occurs first time, first sign, in chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. Chapter 2 and verse 11, Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. First sign, chapter 2. Second sign, chapter 4. Then nothing. No third, no fourth, no seventh. 
But when you put these two stories side to side, first, first sign, second side, you discover they share the same shape. Jesus does the same things. He does the reluctance. His mother comes to him at the wedding saying, they have no more wine. That is a very urgent request expressed in Middle Eastern sort of side speak. What does Jesus say to his mum? Woman? Now, I don't know if you've tried that at your home. <laughs> Tea's ready. Woman? Would not go down well. It's not quite rude, but it's, you've got to agree it's getting close. Woman? And then it's an Aramaic expression. What is this to you or to me? He's basically telling her to push off and stop bothering him. He does the reluctance. And he does the hidden thing, hiddenness thing as well. The master of the banquet gives the credit for the wonderful wine to the bridegroom. This is the best wedding I've ever been to. I've been to hundreds of these weddings. I know what happens. They bring out the, what little they've got of good wine and then when everyone's had too much, they bring out the rubbish. You've done it the other way around. This is the most amazing wedding I've ever been to. Very, very few people know it's actually had anything to do with Jesus. Does the hiddenness thing as well. You think, well, why the hiddenness? Well, there has to be a security aspect to this. You know, Jesus has gone to Galilee to get away from public acclamation. He's gone there to hide himself. He's gone there to be safe. So, you know, doing something a little bit undercover is actually quite a good idea from that point of view. I also think there's an anti-ego thing. You know, when you have a powerful gift, like the gift of healing, it's very, very easy, is it not, to become self-important and self-centred. Jesus completely refuses to be like that all the time, especially about healing. But there's also an, an empowering of others, you know, this is an invitation for the Father to participate in, the own, in his own miracle. Just as in the wedding at Cana, it's an invitation for the servants to participate in the provision of wonderful wine. It's an empowering thing going on here. And this sets up a model for how all future miracles are going to occur. You know, when we pray for the sick, we don't do the healing. I hope you know that. We don't do the healing. The healing ministry is all about bringing people to Jesus and allowing Jesus to work. But we are invited to participate in our prayers and in the laying on of our hands. A miracle can occur. All of which is a complete contrast to the next door. Chapter 5 and verse 1. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, there is a pool called in Hebrew Bethsaida, which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he'd been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Now, note the timeline again. 
festival of the Jews. This is very likely to be the festival of weeks held in May. Note the eyewitness detail again. Name of the gate, name of the pool, number of the porticos, how many years the man has been ill. But in this story, completely different, Jesus takes the initiative. He goes to this place which is a kind of cross between a day centre and a healing shrine. He's looking for someone to help him. You know, this, this is not a request from a mother at a wedding. This is not a request from a father to help his son who lay dying. Jesus has a plan here. Jesus is following a project through here. He needs somebody to help him. He needs this man. He thinks this man might be just the guy for him. He just needs to check one tiny little detail. Do you want to get well? What an extraordinary question. What an extraordinary question. Um, You know the whole lying on the mat thing? Do you you fancy not doing that anymore? (laughs) Now... I don't think we need to go into the psychology of the long-term sick. I, I, I think this is just kindness and respect. If, you know, if the man had said, no, fine, I'm fine, thanks, I quite like the mat thing, uh, I think Jesus would have chosen somebody else. But the man doesn't say no. He doesn't exactly say yes, but he doesn't say no. He talks instead about the impossibility of getting healed. Sir, the invalid replied, verse 7, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, we can tell from this reply that the man has no idea who he's talking to. He doesn't even know his name. And that's confirmed later in the story. The man who had healed had no idea who it was. Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Didn't even know he was talking to Jesus. And his understanding of healing is completely superstitious. You know, later manuscripts add an explanation here that there was a legend that an angel would descend and stir the waters and whoever was first into the pool would be healed. That seems to be a deduction from what the man says and it is a later addition. It's not original. But with or without that explanation, Healing is clearly seen by this man and the people around him as something totally arbitrary, without any real meaning or purpose behind it, something that's very occasional, and something that's just a lottery. You know, if you just happen to be getting into the waters when this stirring thing happens, then, you know, your lucky day. None of which is God. It's just the luck of the draw. That's how the man's thinking. Now, Jesus, don't you love me? He doesn't bother to engage in a theological debate about the shortcomings of magical, superstitious thinking. He just gets on with his project. He just tells the man, okay, get up, get up, get up, and pick while you're about it, pick up your mat, and then walk off into the city. Okay, got it? Ah. Jesus said to him, verse 8, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. 38 years. Got that number? 38 years. 38 years is a really, really long time to be lying 
on a mat. 38 years of that mat mocking you. You can barely move. <laughs> you can't even stand. <laughs> You've got to lie on me. You can't walk. <laughs> and suddenly, you're standing, you're walking, and you can tell that mat where to get off. Suddenly, you have power over the mat. Now, we can easily miss this. You try lying on a mat for the next 38 years and see how you feel when you suddenly rise up off it. And if the man who commands you to stand up also tells you to pick up the mat and walk into the city with the mat and your healing is connected to all three of those actions. Get up, pick up the mat and walk. You would not be putting it down in a hurry. It's a great feeling. Carrying the mat. Walking with them. The mat! <laughs> And he told me to pick up the mat and carry the mat. I am carrying the mat. You would not be putting it down in a hurry. And that's exactly what Jesus wants. Because this healing is all very, very, very deliberate. This is not accidental. This is what Jesus wants. A man walking around a city, carrying a mat, enjoying every minute of mat carrying and refusing to stop the mat carrying. He doesn't find the nearest bin and chuck the mat in the bin. Oh, no, 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 I've got to carry this mat. I've been told to carry this mat by the man who has suddenly changed my life. I am carrying this mat. Can you say I'm still carrying the mat? Because <laughs> mat carrying is what I do. It's time has come. And it causes a massive hoo-ha, as they say. Massive hoo-ha. Verse 9. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders said to the man who'd been healed, It's the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat on the Sabbath. Why are you carrying your mat? Do you not know what day it is? It's the Sabbath. Why are you carrying your mat? I mean, talk about spectacularly missing the point. <laughs> Have you ever seen someone miss the point so spectacularly as that? Like, this guy's not walked for 38 years. Why have you not noticed that? He's carrying a mat, that's why. Carrying a mat. It's against the law. Now, the Jewish law does say don't work on the Sabbath. The Sabbath day is for rest. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shan't do any work. Now, the detail of what that means is a matter of interpretation, is it not? And Jeremiah says don't carry your load. 
Jeremiah 17, 21, this is what the Lord says, be careful not to carry a load on the Sabbath day or bring it through the gates of Jerusalem. So we're pushing the boundary here, but what, what constitutes a load isn't specified. And the, the idea of the matters a load has been added later by the t- current teachers. He's carrying a mat. He's disobeying God. But that's what Bible teachers do, try and interpret the Bible. It's just they've got it completely wrong. And neither do the scriptures say that that healing is a work that shouldn't be done on the Sabbath. The authorities believe and teach that. In their teaching, healing is seen as a work of creation. And as we know, God did the creating thing for six days and then he had a break. And the synagogue leader says this in the Gospel of Luke. You know, this is another moment like this. There are six days for healing. Come back tomorrow. What are you doing coming today for your healing? It's the Sabbath. We don't do healing on the Sabbath. You should know that by now. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And by healing on the Sabbath, and by making the man carry the mat, and making absolutely sure he wouldn't put it down, Jesus is deliberately provoking the authorities to think again about their teaching on both healing and rest. Jesus is revealing how completely upside down their teaching has got. He's not challenging the scripture, he's challenging them. He's overturning their petty, pointless, narrow, oppressive rules. They've taken something good from God and they've turned it into something bad. The reason the Sabbath was created was for our good, for our rest. We're told not to work the whole time, but to rest. And in the process, we are saved from being addicted to God and uh, to work and the endless pursuit of money. And God knows that we need these things. The Sabbath is here to serve us and do us good. But they've made it something oppressive, petty, legalistic. Their teaching about rest is not restful anymore. Now this story also has a partner story in the Gospel of John. And it's in the bit in chapter 2, again, where Jesus closes down the temple for an hour or two. You can read about that in John 2 and 13 to 22. Jesus does the same things in that story as he does in this story. He challenges the corruption of the authorities. He challenges the corruption of the temple regulations that they've made. He speaks truth to power. And he does it with a prophetic sign that provokes them. In chapter 2, he does it with a whip. I mean, that's amazing as well, isn't it? Jesus made a whip. You know, went off, sent off Andrew, buy some rope, I need rope. What do you need rope for, Lord? I'll show you in a minute. What's he doing? Oh, he's, Jesus clearly been in the scouts. He makes the whip himself. I think he's making a whip. What do you think? I think that looks like a whip. And then he's cracking the whip. And he's kicking the tables over. And he's smacking the backsides of the, of the cattle. And he's chucking all the money around. I mean, it's just shocking. Because they have turned the temple upside down. The place that was meant for the worship and encounter with God has become a business enterprise for them. It's shocking what they've done. And he turns it upside down with a prophetic sign. 
lasts a couple of hours. In this story, he does it with a man carrying a mat. And the outcome is serious. Verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Okay, what does all this mean for us then? In closing, you'll be glad to know. Well, number one, I hope you understand Jesus better. I hope you love Jesus more. Jesus has called you to be his friend. I do not call you servants any longer. The servant doesn't know what the master is doing. I have called you friends. Because everything I have made known to you is everything I have learned from my father. Jesus is calling you to be his friend. And to become someone's close friend, you need to know them, do you not? You need to know their story. You need to know their history. You need to know what really matters to them. And here you have two wonderful stories that draw you really close to who Jesus is and what's going on inside his heart and his mind. It's beautiful. I hope you walk out of here loving Jesus more. But these stories also shape what it means for us to be church. You know, John paints a vision of the church as the gathered people of God, the flock of God, the family of God, the dwelling place of God, with the living Jesus risen in our midst. And this is what the risen and ascended Jesus says to you, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. So what are the needs of the people of North Allerton and North Yorkshire? How is Jesus inviting you to step forward into the miracle where your obedient actions will enable God's power to be released and God to be glorified? Where do you have to walk in order for God's power to be released and God's healing to come and God to be glorified? Don't try and meet every need. Pause, push back. But when you know God says yes, step into the gap, step into the lack, even if you don't have all the resources and the answers, get walking, step into what God has said, believing Jesus for a release of his power. Do I hear a small amen? And number two, the second story, so different to the first one. Where are the injustices? Where is the corruption in North Allerton and North Yorkshire? Where is Jesus speaking truth to power? Now it will be prophetic, but what whip are you going to make? What man are you going to send into the city carrying his mat? Because the temple did fall and the Sabbath was restored. Where are the injustices that Jesus wants you to be a prophetic sign to, to speak truth unto power? 
Because that's what you've been sent to do. You know, figures for Yorkshire and Humber show there are 128 rape convictions for 6,678 reports of rape. Rape has been decriminalised effectively in Yorkshire and Humberside. That is an injustice. Violence against women, sexual injustice against sexual violence against women is happening right now outside of this building and nothing is done about it. Jesus said this Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Where are the needs you're going to walk into? And what is the truth that you're going to speak to power? Let's pray. You know, maybe you're sitting here and you know that you're trapped in your past and you're broken. Well, today is a day where the love of Jesus can touch your heart and bring healing and freedom. There's prayer ministry at, at the end of our time together. Maybe you need to go there and just say briefly what you want prayer for and, and ask to meet with Jesus. Maybe you're sitting here today and, and you know there's a need that God wants you to meet, but you need the courage to start to walk into it, trusting only in God. Let's pray for you too. Or maybe you need to open your eyes to the injustice that's around you and speak. Let's pray for you. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the amazing example you are to us. We thank you for the depth of your compassion and love. We thank you for your sensitivity to us. We thank you for your closeness to the Father and how you could see what God was doing and you, you did that. Lord, we pray for those who are trapped. That today you will, in your love and in your call, free them. Free them and heal them. 
We pray for those who are called to step towards need. That you would help them know it's you, Lord, and not the need that's calling. And you would help them walk into it, trusting only in you. And Lord, we pray for us as your people. Help us, O God, with courage and clarity to speak truth to power and reveal the hearts of wicked men. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name.